Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. Good morning, church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yeah. We're reading from chapter, Revelation chapter 4, verse 2 to 8. At once I was in the spirit, and God behind. Behold, a throne stood in the heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Caleb. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an hemorrhage. Around the stone were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crown on their heads. From the throne came flashing of the light and bombings, and the peace of the thunders uh, before the throne were burning seven church of fires, which the seven spirit of the Lord. And before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and back behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an horse, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in the flight, and the fourth living creature, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around within the days and nights. They never cause to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Praise the Lord, church. Praise the Lord. We are going to chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. A scroll written within and on the back, sealed, and seven sealed. And I saw the mighty angel proclaiming with a louder voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break in the seal? And no one in the heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to took into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the throne or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of the David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and he, and he is saved the seal. It's the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. 
So, Father, I just pray that you take this word and burn it into our hearts this morning. Change us by it, God. I invite you to shake up my little world today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, thank you, Victor. You know, uh, <clears throat> it's really hard to do this because there's so many good parts in the book of Revelation, but I have to be honest. I think for me this morning, this is my favorite part of the entire book because there's just no way I feel really alive. There. Woo, woo, woo. Because there's just no way to really overestimate uh, the power of what's in these two chapters. Like literally, if we grab a hold of these two chapters, friends, this morning, it'll change your life. Literally. Everything about your daily life and everything about your whole eternity, it literally hinges on what's in these two chapters. So that being said, it's going to seem sort of weird to start with this illustration, but do you know how to tell the difference between a hard-boiled egg and an egg that's uncooked? Without breaking them, of course. You don't want to smash them like that. You, you spin them, right? Uh, an egg that's not cooked wobbles, and an egg that's cooked spins like a top. Because the, the reason is, you see, the egg that's cooked has a hard center. It's got a solid center, which gives it a, an axis point upon which the whole egg can spin. The egg that doesn't, is uncooked, it's just, it's mush on the inside. So there's nothing on it, there's nothing in it by which it can spin. And it's a great picture of your life and mine. Because, friends, if your life is wobbling, or if any aspect of your life is wobbling, it's because it's not connected to something solid. And if you, you look around, you notice the last couple of years, a lot of wobbling going on. You, get the, you feel that? People are more stressed and more frazzled and more worried, more broken, it seems, like than ever before. It's almost like our mushy centers have been exposed. And, and we're continuing to grasp for something solid, but everything else we grasp is wobbling too. Little, little sidebar, I think, that we are actually ripe for revival. Because as people become more and more desperate and begin to realize that there's less, in, I have, they see how much they're wobbling, where else do I turn I think your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your school classmates, they are just begging to know the hope that you carry, Christian. To know the rock on which you stand, Christian. They want to know that. Now's the time to tell them. Because everything's wobbling. Everything is shaking. And, and we come here into this section of scripture that Victor read for us, and it reveals the very epicenter of ultimate reality. There is a throne, and it does not shake. It cannot wobble. And if my life is attached to that throne, then I will not wobble. I will not worry, but in fact, I will worship. You see, we, if we don't worry, listen, the, the, the antidote for worry is worship. If I'm, if I'm worshiping, then I'm really not going to worry. If I'm worrying, 
it's because I'm not worshiping. It's because I've, I've lost sight of this throne, see? Here's the deal. You and I were created to worship. We were not made to worry. Worry is not a part of your DNA. It's not a, a natural part of our human nature. It's foreign to us. You say, so why do we worry then? We worry because we've set up our own little thrones, and we're trying to rule our own little lives, and, and, and we instinctively know that I can't do that. We instinctively know we make a really bad God. I can't do it. And so then what do we end up doing? Well, we, we start to try to control or manipulate people and situations around us in order to make my little life okay, in order to maintain my feng shui, as it were, right? I'm trying to keep it peaceful. So I manipulate and I control people around me in order to maintain that, and it just doesn't work. Eventually it falls apart. You feel it, your family feels it, your friends feel it. And this morning, the Apostle John takes us here in Revelation 4 and 5, and he shows us this throne. And friends, by the time we're done today, I think that we will discover, we will see just how silly we have been in trying to run our own lives and trying to be the king of our own world and the captain of our own destiny. So let's get at it. Verse 1, chapter 4, John, uh, he sees this door open between heaven and earth, and he hears this voice, and it's the same voice that he hears back in chapter 1. It's a trumpet-like voice, he says. And this voice says, come up here. We, we learned that from chapter 1, the trumpet. It's a commanding voice. You don't ignore it. He says, come up here. And so John comes up here. You know, we gain a different perspective when we come up here, don't we? You notice that? You know, I can get locked into my day and my schedule and all my stuff and all my problems and all my issues, and then I come up here and I get a different perspective on them. And this is what John gets. He sees the different perspective on what's happening. And do you remember, like, do you remember who Revelation is being written to? Think about it. It's being written to persecuted Christians. These people, John's first audience, like they were really going through the ringer. And so, so can you see how, like, how awesome this is that, that Jesus would step in and say, okay, let, come up here. Let me show you something. See? It's the same thing that happened back when Job, if you remember the story of Job in the Old Testament. And Job spends all this time in all of his problems, doesn't he? And then you come near the end of the book of Job, and what does God do? God says, Job, let me show you something. And he starts asking him these questions. And by the time God's done, Job's like, okay, I'm done. I get it. And that's, in essence, what he's doing here in, the, in Revelation with these people. They're going through the ringer, and Jesus says, come up here. And do you remember, <clears throat> and, do you, and do you see how gracious Jesus is in this too? Because you remember last week, we looked at Jesus' message to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, remember? And he had some good things to say, but he also had some hard things to say last week, right? And, and Jesus doesn't allow us to wallow in our self-pity, does he? He doesn't allow us to lick our wounds for long. 
Not at all. No, no, no. Get, get, get out of that pit, my friend. No, no. Come up here. I've got something for you. And he shows us something glorious. And what does John see? John sees a throne. He says, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne. And it's not just any throne. This throne is the very epicenter of power and authority in the universe. This throne is the heartbeat of ultimate authority exerting its unmitigated influence across time and space to the very edges of reality. This throne is ultimate reality. What you and I live in here is a mere shadow land of that. It really is. This is why it's so foolish for us to like take this world so seriously. You know, we get all wrapped up like this is all there is. And you come here and you realize, oh no, this is just a fraction of what there is. What we see on planet Earth is, I mean, it's not even the tip of the iceberg, you know? It's, it's the penguin on the tip of the iceberg. Like it's that small compared to ultimate reality, you see? And, and it's like, like when our kids were little, you know, our, they would play house. It's one of the games our kids would play. All, most kids do it. And so we got our younger two, Caston and Carissa, they were always the mom and the dad. And then our, our oldest, Catherine, she was always the baby. And, uh, and Karis and I would listen to them play and watch them play. Sometimes we'd just shake her. She gave her brother and sister the runaround. Let me tell you, man, they had, whew, they had a good time. But how silly would it be if we were to somehow think that their playing house was real? Like, I mean, their pretend house was cute and all that. It's adorable, of course. But there's, it's not even close to real. Like, they never paid taxes. You know, they never, there were so many things. They're about a real house that they completely weren't even doing, right? They, and yet, isn't that essentially what you and I are doing when we pretend like this world is real and like this world is forever and we hang on to this? It's like we're playing house and we think this whole thing is real while merely it's a shadow of what is really going on. And this, my friend, is really why we worry in a sense. This, my loved one, is why you're controlling because you're racked by fear. You know that you're hanging on to something that's temporary and you can feel it slipping away and it scares the daylights out of you. So you grab for control of anything and anyone that you can and you feel it and your family feels it because you know your little world is collapsing right before your eyes, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm here to tell you, friend, there's good news. You don't have to live that way. There is a throne. Your life can be anchored to something eternal, something real, something solid. And so this door between heaven and earth gets open, and John comes up here, and he sees ultimate reality, and at the center of it all, there's this throne, and again, John wrestles with the words. He just can't describe what it is that he sees, and, and yet he does his best. He can't tell us exactly, so he uses images. 
He uses images to create a picture and somehow help you and me to share the experience with him. Does this make sense? And, and what does he see? Verse 3 says, the one who sat on a throne, it, he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now, he's obviously talking about God. So what is it about two rocks and a rainbow that, makes, that looks like God? See, that seems odd, doesn't it? But remember, God doesn't literally look like two rocks and a rainbow. John's using images to help us grasp a hold of what he sees. God's spirit. He's not material. So he's using material images to help us understand what he sees. And what is this? So Jasper. Jasper is a gem. Jasper and carnelian are gems. Jasper is a gem. It's kind of like a diamond that whenever you cut it, it reflects light from all the different angles and it casts out different colors of light in the rainbow, and, and it has many dimensions to it. And you think about it like this is a great picture for God, isn't it? God is multidimensional, multifaceted, color, amazing, blazing color, and yet God is one. So we have one jasper, multi-dimensions, and then it says he looks like carnelian. Carnelian is the old word, or sardis, or sardine. Uh, some people translate it as an amethyst or a ruby. It's a ruby red kind of stone. And carnelian is a picture of the blood of Christ. Ultimately, it's a stone that represents the justice of God. Because the blood of Christ is related to the justice of God. You say, how is that? Well, because you and I have sinned. And every sin that you and I commit is a crime against, it's an injustice, it's a crime against a holy God and the perfect world that he created. Do you understand? God gave us a perfect world and we ruined it. Every sin you, I commit, all of us have committed, all of us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says, it, it, it's comes against the perfect world that God has created. It comes against his perfect character. It is an injustice. Someone has to die to pay for it. But who would be moral enough in order to pay for all of our immorality? Oh, Jesus. God himself. And this is what John sees. He sees the blood of Christ paying for the sins of humanity there. Not only that, it gets even cooler because Jasper and Carnelian, if you go back to the, go back to the book of Exodus, uh, where the high priest is described and his clothing is described, the high priest of Israel wore a breastplate, and in that breastplate, he had 12 stones, and each stone represented one of the tribes of Israel, so 12 tribes of Israel, and the idea behind that was that he's carrying Israel close to his heart. He's the priest. He's interceding for, the, for Israel. Well, the first stone in that breastplate is carnelian, and the last stone in that breastplate is jasper. So it's as if John is condensing it, and he's showing us that this one seated on the throne is the high priest, and he's carrying next to his heart his people. He carries us close to his heart. And then it says that he's surrounded by this emerald rainbow. It's encircling his throne, okay? It's a callback 
to the rainbow that God put in the sky after he flooded the earth. And he saved Noah. Remember Noah in the ark and gets out of the ark after the flood and God puts a rainbow in the sky and he promises that he will never again destroy the earth by water. Never again. And now John is in heaven and he sees this rainbow still there. That's pretty cool. God remembers his promises but what's super cool, I think, is like this. Okay, in space and time, in our dimension, how long ago was Noah in the ark? Tens of thousands of years ago. Who knows? A long time, right? And, and so in space and time, that promise was made all those years ago. But now John is in the presence of God in heaven, and this is a timeless place not bound by space and time. It's another whole dimension, and he sees the same rainbow. It's as if God is just never going to forget. It's still in effect. His promise still stands. God will never break his promise. So think about this. A throne. Think about what a throne is. It's the center of rule in a kingdom. You and I don't live in a monarchy. We live in the United States of America, but there are monarchies still in this world. And in a monarchy, the throne, it's the center of government for that monarchy. It's where the king makes decisions for the nation. It's where the king signs agreements and signs covenants. It's where the king um, executes justice, deciding life and death things. It's where the king does all of the work of government. Government is the, at, the cent, at the throne. And so at this throne, John sees the ultimate government. He sees the one who occupies it. And what does he see? Oh, he sees a majestic king filled with splendor, dazzling in light, ruling in perfect justice, a king who makes promises and keeps his word forever, a king who serves the loving priest who holds his people close to his heart. This is a king who can be trusted. Verse 4 says that surrounding this throne, there are 24 other thrones, and on those 24 thrones, you have 24 elders seated. Now, there's a lot of debate about who these 24 elders are. Um, some people think they represent the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles. It's possible. Um, I happen to think that it's simpler than that. If you look in the book of Revelation, the 24 elders show up a couple of times. And each time they show up in the book of Revelation, they're leading worship. And, and in the Bible, 12 is symbolic of divine government and all of its multiples. So you have 24 so these, is it possible, I think, I'll just throw it out there, that these guys, are that their job is to oversee worship in the throne room. Like, it's as simple as that. These 24 elders seated on the throne, leading worship. And verses 5 and 6 are interesting because John creates a contrast there, which produces a little bit of drama in the text. Like, Verse 5, you got your Bibles here, you're looking at verse 5. In verse 5, you have the, the, the throne, from the throne come flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, 
In front of the throne, seven lamps are blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there's what looked like a, a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So verse 5, you've got the throne, and it's pulsating with power. You've got lightning zapping out. You see that? Lightning zapping out. You've got, you've got rumblings, like shaking, and peals of thunder happening. It's, it's literally pulsating with power. It's like buzzing, you know? It's so powerful. You think about it, omnipotent. What would omnipotence look like if it was located on a throne? See? So, so here it is. This is what John sees. And then, and then on top of that, you've got these seven lamps blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God. Okay, listen, there aren't seven gods, just for the record. Remember, the number seven always means complete. So, so when he says you've got seven lamps, seven spirits, he's saying this is all of God in his blazing glory is located in this place. Now you have this, and then in front of all of that, what do you have? A sea of glass. So wait a second. You know, lightning rumblings, thunder, blazing fire, and the water is unmoved? How does that work? I think in the Bible... The sea is a place of chaos. It's always portrayed as chaotic. Uh, from Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, the Spirit of God's hovering over the surface of the deep, and what does he do? Out of that chaos, he brings order. See, And then later on in Genesis, God floods the earth, and so the waters of chaos destroy the earth, and God rescues Noah, and he rebuilds. See, And then you have Jonah. He's in a storm, and they throw him overboard, and he gets swallowed by a whale, but then the water becomes calm. And you have Jesus. He's walking on the stormy waters. And he, one time he says, peace be still, and the whole thing stops. And the other time he's walking on the stormy water, and the disciples are in the boat. And the moment Jesus steps in the boat, the water goes calm. So in the Bible, you just have this image, this picture of waters and sea as being chaotic. It's a dangerous place. And, and even in the ancient mindset, not just the Bible, but the other people, you know, that weren't, weren't in the Bible, ancient peoples, they, they were afraid of the sea. They, they believed that there was this creature called Leviathan who ruled the seas, and he was scary, scary dragon-like, like the Loch Ness Monster on steroids. You know, and sea captains and scallywags regaled their audiences around campfires with stories of Leviathan. And, and the ancient pagans, they, they worshipped a god of the sea. His name was Moat. And Moat was not necessarily a, a friendly god. He was a threatening god. All that to say, the sea in their mindset is this scary place. And yet, what does it look like in the presence of God? Sea of glass. You see, this, this thing that these ancient peoples were totally afraid of and could never control is completely under the control of the one seated on this throne. It's a sea of glass. See, it's under his thumb. And then it gets weird. You say, it's not weird yet? Oh, it gets even weirder. There are these four living creatures at the throne in verse 6, in the center around the throne, four living creatures, and they're covered with eyes, 
in front and in back. The first living creature is like a lion, second an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth like a flying eagle, and, and they got wings, and they got eyeballs all around them, and like, what is this? Now, I know, I know what Marvin's thinking. Marvin's thinking he'd like to shoot it and, 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 and hang it on his wall. It'd look real nice next to your elk, wouldn't it, Marv? I know that. You'd love to stuff it. But that's kind of not how this works. Like, remember, this is, a, this is a, an image. And so these guys aren't really like this. They're not this weird. John is trying to paint a picture for us to see this. And there's a couple of different theories about who these four living creatures are. So one theory is from Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in Texas. He believes that these beasts represent the best of planet Earth. I think it's a good theory. Like, he says it this way, is not the lion the noblest of creatures and the ox the strongest of creatures and the man the wisest of creatures and the eagle the swiftest? So in a sense, these guys could just be the best of planet Earth there at the throne of God, worshiping with all the angels. It's possible. Another author says it this way. His name is Don Johnson, uh, not the Miami Vice Don Johnson. He's got less stubble, this Don Johnson does. But he's a theologian, and he says this. Don Johnson says that these four living creatures, that they represent who you are in Christ. They are the truest you. Because wouldn't that be true, that who you are in Christ really is the truest you? I mean, Jesus is the perfect human. He is the picture of what all of us are meant to be. And so those of us who are in Christ are being made in his image, so we're actually becoming the truest humans, aren't we? We're being made like Christ. And if you think about how Scripture says it, you've got Proverbs 28.1 says that the righteous are bold as a lion. And Matthew 20.26 20, talks about us being servants. The ox is always a, he's a servant. He's the, you know, a work animal. And then you have 2 Corinthians, anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So in Christ, I'm a whole new man. And then Isaiah 40, those who wait on the Lord rise up on wings like eagles. So you've got these two ideas, and personally, I kind of like merging them. So I, I guess I might say it this way, like, aren't the best among people the people of God? The, the ones who are, have been redeemed and, and who are under the direction of the Holy Spirit are being transformed from glory to glory, being transformed into the image of Christ. Like we would be the noblest, the truest humans, called to serve, called to soar above earth's dilemmas, not because of who we are, but because of the work of Christ in us, see? And if you truly surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus, well, and the control of his Holy Spirit, then he will transform you just like this. So maybe there's something about the two of them coming together. But at any rate, you have these four living creatures, and they are before the throne of God. And they're covered with eyes, which means they now have perfect vision. They can see. See? Their faith has now become sight. What they could only see before in a glass darkly while on planet Earth, now they can see clearly. I can see clearly now. Sorry, that just came to me. That's not even in my notes. I'm sorry. And notice, and notice where all the focus of attention is. Notice where everybody's looking. Verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 9, and 10. All mention 
the throne. The throne is the epicenter. And what do they do? They worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They worship the one on the throne. And in chapter 2, verse 11, every crown is laid down before this throne in honor of the one who occupies it. Every crown, meaning they all recognize that my authority, whatever authority I thought I had, what do I do with it? I give it to him. He's the ultimate authority. In fact, I'm thinking in light of Jesus on the throne, in light of his authority and his power, my crown, it's like the Burger King crown, little paper crown. It means it's so little, it's so puny in comparison with his authority, any authority that I think I have, oh my goodness, it bows to his ultimate authority, doesn't it? I think I rule my little world, and then I come into his magnanimous greatness. You know, as kids, we used to play uncle, grab your buddy's hands and twist them around like that until they cry uncle. This is the ultimate uncle. You know when you're bested. You know it. And I think it's fascinating. God doesn't say a word. He doesn't demand that you throw your crown down. He doesn't demand that you bow down and worship him. It's his presence. It's his presence. You know, it's one of the reasons I believe why God does not show himself to us now in all of his full glory. Because now God wants our worship to be voluntary. If God was to show us like this, worship is involuntary. You, it's, it's the natural reaction to that greatness. And it's here God wants us to walk by faith, to learn to trust him, to worship him. See? In chapter 5, then chapter 5 shifts the focus. With all this power and all of this authority, and these flashes of lightning, and this awesomeness, and these angels, and they're singing holy, holy, holy. All of this going on. Something catches John's eye. Like John goes, what is that? There's something in his hand. And he looks at the right hand of God, and he sees there's a scroll in God's right hand. And this scroll is sealed seven seals and it has writing on both sides of it and John's like what is that can you can you see the can you see the picture the, can you get the scene all of heaven is worshiping They're, they are all focused on this throne and they're all about him and John catches he's like he catches this glimpse of this scroll he says what is that scroll now next week we're going to dive into this more fully, so sit tight. We're going to look at the seven seals next week. But one of the things we're going to discover next week is that this scroll actually contains God's written plan of redemption. This is, you know, you know how the Bible says, in the Bible God says, hey, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, give you hope in the future. I know the plans I have for you. Yes. And he has them written down on this scroll. 
the plans of God for humanity, his plan of redemption, his will, his perfect will, it's all spelled out on this scroll, okay? And next week, we're going to look into that. It's going to be awesome, but I want to just stay in this moment right here. We're in this throne room, and as soon as John sees this scroll, it catches his eye, and then this mighty angel speaks up, and this mighty angel almost dares everybody, who is worthy to take the scroll and open it? Who is worthy? And I imagine, in my imagination, that it gets a little awkward at this point because the angels start looking at each other like, well, I, I know I, no, I can't do it. And, and, and then any of the people, the four living creatures, you know, they're around there. I know I can't do it. I mean, like, if you're brave enough, think about it. Like, it's the ultimate video game quest. Like, if you're brave enough to get past the blazing torches and you're able to survive the rumbling and the earthquaking and the zapping lightning, you know, see, then you can grab the scroll. You think you're going to get past all that to get the scroll? I don't think so. Not only that, I know I'm standing there, and you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, heck, I'm only here by grace. I mean, there ain't no way I'm worthy to step up there and get that scroll. Like, I don't even deserve to be here in the first place. Are you kidding me? Let alone take that scroll. Not happening. All of heaven is awkwardly staring at one another, wondering who is going to take this scroll from the grip of God. But our awkward silence is broken by the sound of weeping. Verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4, John says, I wept and I wept. I wept and I wept. Is there nobody who can take this scroll? Is there nobody? Is there anybody who can, who can show us what the will of God is? Is there anybody who can, who can help us to understand God's answers to our questions? Is there anybody who can answer these things for us? Is there anyone? I mean, there's nobody worthy. You mean the will of God, the heart of God is going to be wrapped up in that scroll forever and ever and nobody is going to know it? John weeps, he weeps. And then one of the 24 elders, what does he do? Goes over to John and he says, don't weep, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He, he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And John says that the lamb rises up. And it's weird because John's almost nondescript at this point, And I think it catches my attention. Because with all of this, like, literary, uh, you know, footwork that John's been doing to try to bring us into this scene with him, you know, all the fancy language he's using. And then all of a sudden, John just gets real plain. He's like, yep, he stepped up, took the scroll. You think, why? What's he doing? You know what he's doing? He's communicating something to us. Jesus doesn't need permission to get that scroll. 
Jesus doesn't need a committee to take a vote on it and decide whether or not he can get the scroll. Like, Jesus doesn't need approval. He doesn't need to cut red tape. Jesus doesn't need anybody to give him a nod to, you know, to make sure he feels okay about going up. He doesn't need encouragement. Oh, you go, Jesus. You can do it. I know you can do it. Like, he doesn't need any of that. Why? Because Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is everything that God needed to say. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything on that scroll. See? And so that's what John's saying. Jesus doesn't need our approval to do it. No fancy footwork. He just is. He just takes it, right? And when Jesus takes the scroll, notice what happens. And this we have to read because it is so awesome. Verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. Well, I'm going to go to verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are what, friends? The prayers of God's people. I don't know, that gives prayer a lot more power to me. Like, your prayer becomes a part of this bowl of incense that goes up before the God of the universe, see? Okay, so my prayers are part of this scene. The prayer you prayed this morning is a part of this scene right now. Wow. The cry of your heart is a part of this scene right now. And the, and the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song, and they say, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So what's at the center? The throne. They're circling around the throne. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Actually, would you stand with me? Let's just stand. We need to say this. Do you notice there's some rhythm in this? Power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Because if we say this together, let's worship him. He's got the power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. He's got power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. Oh, come on. Power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. We're giving it all to him. Power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. See, it's all his, isn't it? It's all his, isn't it? And then he says, then I heard, just stay standing, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. You can be seated, I think. I don't know, or stay standing, but we're almost done. Look at, do you, do you notice there? Do you notice there? And worship team, you can come. We're almost done. So you notice there 
What happens when all of heaven worships? The earth responds, doesn't it? I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. You, you get the picture that all of creation is literally like pulsating with praise for the one on this throne. All of creation, every Every to the furthest stretch of reality, wherever that is, in our dimension, that dimension, any other dimension that there is, he is in charge of it. He's at the center of it. His throne rules it all, you see, and it's throbbing with praise for this one on the throne. If you've ever wondered, my friend, how we will be able to worship in heaven forever, you ever wondered that? Like, I'm going to spend forever singing songs? Oh, I can't imagine. Listen, this answers the question. On earth, we've never been captivated by one so beautiful. We've never been mesmerized by one so amazing. Never been raptured by one so breathtaking. Hey, listen, in heaven, worship won't be a problem. Doing anything else will be a problem. Like literally. Finding time, see? He is truly the center of it all. Which brings me back to the egg illustration. I wobble because I don't have Jesus at the center. If he's at the center, see? He inspires my worship. He compels my devotion. And he infuses me with courage. I trust in Him. My life is centered on Him. I just want to give us a simple invitation this morning. And that is this. Jesus is the center. That's what the Bible says. He's the center of it all. The question for you is, is Jesus the center of your life? Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.